I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast. As always, presented by our good friends over at Scentlock. Guys, today I've got two very special guests with me. I've got Justin Spring, who is the Director of Records at Boone and Crockett. I've also got Caleb Sorrels from Bear Archery. And at the most recent Pope and Young convention, us three kind of dove into this conversation about the ethics behind hunting and ethics with rifle hunting versus bow hunting also the impact that rifle hunters and bow hunters have on not only the 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 landscape but also the deer herds and conservation efforts and we also talk about our influences hunters and kind of how all of this ties together how us as ethical bow hunters and leaving the least amount of impact on the animals that we can ties to our influence and how our influence ties to those things guys it's a phenomenal episode My hopes for this episode is that it will spark you to have more of these hard conversations with your friends, with your hunting buddies, with your family members about hunting. Guys, I hope you stay right there tuned in because Justin dives in and gives the history of Boone and Crockett, what they as an organization strive to do for us as hunters on a daily basis. It is a phenomenal episode. Justin is a a well-informed, good speaker. Caleb has some strong input on uh, the impact that we as hunters have. And guys, I just hope that you'll gain something from this episode, and I hope it will spark you to have more of these difficult conversations. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life. There's no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. Guys, if you're a traditional archer and you have not checked out Three Rivers Archery, what are you waiting for? Three Rivers Archery is your one-stop shop for all things traditional archery. They have the largest in-stock selection of of traditional archery equipment anywhere same day shipping very 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 knowledgeable listen i use three rivers all the time if i've got a question on tuning if i've got a question on broadheads if i've got a question on brace height or anything like that i use three rivers for everything they know the products because they use the products three rivers archery is by far the gold standard when it comes to traditional archery so guys If you're just getting into traditional archery, I would encourage you to use Three Rivers as a resource for knowledge and understanding and growing and learning and as a place to get all those products that you're going to be needing as you take this journey. All right, Justin. So before we get into the kind of the meat of the conversation that I I want to have, give us an introduction to Boone and Crockett. 
kind of like the history of Boone and Crockett, why you exist, what you do, okay. um, all of the good details that everybody needs to know. So we were started by Theodore Roosevelt in 1887. He and George Bird Grinnell saw the plight of wildlife and that something needed to be done. So they, they held a dinner in um, 1887, formulated the organization in 1888, and since that time, we have been fighting all the conservation battles. Um, a lot of us know us, you know, know the organization for records. That is one piece of what we do, but it is a very small percentage. Um, but you know, formation of some of the major organizations, Wild Sheep Foundation, Early Ducks Unlimited, um, a lot of the the legislative actions, the Lacey Act, the, the Pittman Robertson, uh, even all the way up to you know the the, the current legislation today. So. You know, Boone and Crockett's got a bit of everything, and anywhere we can help wildlife and wild places, it's what we've been doing for over 100 years. So, and <laughs> I've heard the joke given, like, you're not a hunting organization because you'll take them if they're hit by a car. Um, <laughs> and I know the truth behind that. You know the truth behind that. Uh, Boone and Crockett wants to look at, at where the biggest animals are in the world, not necessarily – you know, what they were harvested by, but, but where in the world do the biggest animals live? Um, so why, why collectively is all of that data collected? I mean, if it was hit by a car, why is it collected? If it's a found deadhead, why is it collected? And then what is that data used for? So the records data is maintained to, um, gauge wildlife management successes and failures. You know, obviously we're a hunting organization. We feel like, you know, the mechanism of hunter-funded conservation is the best method to fund wildlife conservation. But at the same time, when looking at wildlife populations as a whole, just because a hunter didn't take it doesn't mean that that animal didn't exist. It wasn't created through good conservation measures. And so, yeah, picked up heads, um, you know, a head illegally taken and owned by a game agency. Those are all valid data points that we put in the record and the point of the records and, and what we're using it for, it doesn't necessarily say, Hey, this is, this is what's wrong here. But I can say, you know, for example, this County and say Minnesota always used to put out maybe 10 heads every decade. Well, now it's down to three. What changed there? And so, you know, canary in the coal mine type deal. We can't tell you what the problem is, but we can throw a warning or at the same time point out like, Hey, this areas are all of a sudden seeing a major increase in these older mature male specimens, you know, what, what did we do there that can be, um, you know, used somewhere else to just help wildlife? I mean, like, like you said, you know, we, we, we take everything, but at the end of the day, it's to ensure wildlife and wild places, you know, persist into the future for all future generations. Gotcha. Um, now with being an organization that takes entries from any form, um, rifle, crossbows, compounds, recurves, longbows, cars, deadheads. Where does archery numbers fall into that? Like where do comparatively how many Boone and Crockett's that are killed each year are with archery equipment? So I want to say if you look, we actually have a, a, a mechanism on our website. If you get the big game records live, it has a breakdown of what weapons are taking what species. So you can say, you know, for example, hey, I want to go hunt a big typical American elk. What is the number one way to do that? Turns out it's a compound bow by over twice as much as the nearest rifle caliber. And so it's it's species by species for sure. 
But, you know, the, the seasons, for example, especially for big elk, if you want to do it, you want to hunt in September. And most of the September seasons happen to be with archery. So in that particular category, it's dominating. Um, you know, whitetails, there's a lot of very good whitetails taken with archery equipment. The, the hunting of them is very conductive to being in close. It's just just the way the whitetail is. Um, and so, you know, there's a significant portion of that. Now, yeah, there's some mule deer, there's some antelope. They're not quite as well represented by archery taken harvest in our records as, as some of the other ones. But, you know, it's it, it's very important to us. We can actually look at the data and say, you know, hey, is is you say, like you mentioned, crossbows. Are crossbows more prevalent or more, you know, animals being taken in this crossbow season than with your traditional bow? So, um, yeah, it's, it's a major part. Very significant amount of our entries do come from archery hunters. So what's the number one trophy that you're most, based off your data, obviously, because not all bow hunters are created equal, um, but based off data, say somebody said, I just want to kill a booner. Doesn't matter what species. What's the best bet they have to kill a booner with a bow and arrow? Like I said, I mean, they're... <laughs> A 360-inch net typical elk is not behind every tree. It's still quite the endeavor. Right. But I personally feel that that an elk elk with a bow gives you your best opportunity to kill a, bow, a booner out of anything. Um, right. There is no there's no guaranteed booners other than there's a couple mountain goat hunts that you could draw that you know maybe there's one unit or one tag for a unit that has two thousand applicants. Well, you're the only one there. You could stack your odds that way, but it's not a species by species deal. Or I'd say this is this is the one that you could do right. with a bow. I mean, a booner. A, you, statistically, you're probably not going to see more than one or two in a lifetime. To be able to get one harvested is quite the accomplishment. So, what's the least? What species is the least amount of of bow hunter bow hunting entries? You know, I don't know what the least would be. I've never really looked at that. Um, just from the, you know, the entries that I reviewed when that was my nine to five. Um, yeah. Maybe sheep. Um, I guess we don't, I don't, don't remember seeing a lot of caribou. I know a lot of great caribou were taken with archery equipment, but I don't see, remember seeing a lot of those entered in us. Um <clears throat> But some of those more, gotcha. you know, the more exotic, I guess, higher dollar northern hunts. I don't remember seeing bows as represented as rifles. Gotcha. Which leads me into my my next and kind of the meat of this this conversation. We uh, we all three had the pleasure of sitting around one evening at the Pope and Young Convention and got on the topic of the ethics of bow hunting. Um, and so, Caleb, walk me through kind of what you would say your idea behind uh, bow hunting and rifle hunting and, and the, the difference in the ethics between those two. Yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, kind of the long story short of what we talked about. It's very dependent upon the person, you know, behind the equipment. Um, you know, ethics is a very, very wide or it's open to interpretation is the best way. Thin ice is what it is. Yeah. I mean, you can easily, yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot of rabbit holes and there's a lot of rabbit holes that we got down into. Um, not, I want to get down into those, but, um, you know, I, the ethics between the two, you know, I, I really think that 
it takes a lot more practice and a lot more time behind archery equipment to have the same amount of ethics that it does with a rifle. Not saying that everybody can go pick up a rifle from the, the store, but the amount of time being put input into the two, I think, you know, archery definitely demands a little bit more time. Um, now there's a whole set of arguments and a whole list of different things where you start putting limitations on both of those, um, you know, outside the, the initial exposure to the two pieces of equipment, you know, I think stretching them to their limits, there's, there's a whole, again, a whole plethora of rabbit holes that we can dive into there. <laughs> well, I think exactly what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you take somebody and they make, they make an ethical, well-placed shot with a rifle and an ethical, well-placed shot with a bow, they're both mm -hmm. going to do the trick. Where yeah. it comes down for me is I think a lot of people, myself included, sometimes we get lax because we're like, dude, it's a rifle. All I got to do is hit them and they're dead. Um, and then we place worse shots or we take stupider shots because we're like, well, it's a rifle. It's, it's just got to get close to them and they're dead. Um, whereas with an archery, with archery tackle – like you, you're really there at 20 yards and you wait for the front shoulder to come forward and you wait for him to turn the, and come behind a tree and, and you, you're a lot more careful with it. And so when you get down to the nitty gritty of that part of it, I think the mindset behind a bow hunter is more ethical. Um, whereas the actual equipment of rifles might be more ethical and yeah, it's going to knock them down. Um, but Justin, what have you found? Because you guys track like first shot, second shot, all that stuff too, right? You know, I mean, if it takes somebody four not, shots, you know it, don't you? I mean, we do not track it as tightly as Pope and Young does, where you guys actually ask for the, um, you know, shot location. We have the hunting stories. We can kind of decipher what it is. Um, you know, I can say we do a lot of um, – oh, this deer was harvested or this deer was hit. It wasn't recovered for four or five days. And so we read the story of the recovery, how it took place, whatnot. You know, I can honestly say I don't, I don't think, in my opinion, I see a trend between rifle hunters and bow hunters as a whole. It 100% is the person behind either the trigger or the release or whatever it may be. Um, you know, there's, there's no overall thing yes i'd say that being proficient at 50 yards with a rifle is probably a quicker process than being proficient at you know 20 yards with a bow for sure but it, it's 100 percent the person you know operating whatever it may be and there's there's unethical rifle hunters and there's unethical bow hunters and you know there's super ethical rifle hunters and super ethical bow hunters so when it comes down to and and i believe that that caleb you had had quite a bit of input on this. Um, when it comes down to the impact that rifle hunting versus bow hunting has, maybe on your individual deer herds and maybe on state herds as a whole, um, what kind of impact do you think that that bow hunting versus rifle hunting makes on on not only individuals deer herds but on on you know the conservation efforts as a whole that a state has? Yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot of layers there. Um, if you're talking about impact as far as pressure goes, um, you know, I've been in a tree stand and had a rifle go off two ridges away 
and seeing the behavior and the demeanor of deer immediately change. You know, then turn around and go directly back to bedding areas, what have you. Um, so there's that immediate thing. But then, um, you know, from a population impact, you know, again, I think there's no other day, you know, growing up in the Midwest, opening day of shotgun season, there's a lot of deer killed immediately in that first day. You know, it, it's one of those things where our hunts, you know, a lot of our um, DNR agencies and our conservation agencies, you know, they do a really good job on bag limits to where it's not detrimental impact, obviously, but, you know, a lot, or I would, I mean, I don't have the data. I mean, that's something I'd have to lean on Justin for, you know, how many deer are killed on opening day that go into the books. I would argue that, you know, it's probably a lot, especially in the whitetail front, because I would say a large percentage of deer are killed every day, every year on that single day. So, yeah. I think that I, you know, I, I had the conversation with somebody not too long ago, kind of the same topic. And they said, well, if I need to thin out a whole bunch of does from my, from my property, um, then I'm going to take a rifle. And I said, but you, you just answered your own question. Why is that? Uh, because it's easier. Um, so, but I, I also don't think easy means ethical, uh, you know what I mean? I don't think just because it's easier to harvest them with a rifle makes it more ethical. Uh, because again, it all comes down to like, like Justin and Caleb have both said, it all comes down to the hunter. Um, so that guy, and I know him really, really well. Um, he's a very ethical hunter on both sides of things. So, um, but when those does come out, he doesn't have to wait an hour for him to work in 20 yards. He can just start popping them right there at, at 200, you know, or 150, wherever they're at. Um, so I do think like Caleb mentioned, you know, a lot of deer are killed opening morning of rifle season, but at the same time, if you do need to make a strong impact on your herd, a rifle is probably the best way to do it. Um, so Justin, what have you found? And I don't know if you have a specific example, but of a state that has made the change between expanding a rifle season or shrinking down a, a you know, a bow hunting season, one of those things that made a massive impact on the size of animals that were being killed. Um, do you have a specific example of anything like that? You know, not of a, not of a, I can't think of one where they've reduced a rifle season. I know, I know Utah is actually in the process right now of restructuring a lot of their seasons and it'll be very interesting to see statistically their number of big bulls, that they were putting into the book had dropped significantly. Um, you could argue perhaps it was, it was a more, you know, liberal bag limit, giving more opportunity. You could argue perhaps some of the long range technologies are making these bigger bulls a little more, a little more vulnerable. I don't know what the reason is, but they are trying to address it. That will be a great one to look at in the coming years to see what, what these shortened rifle seasons actually do. Um, you know, I, I do know that, that, the state of Ohio, when they legalized crossbows, they were one of the first ones to do it. We did see a shift in the harvest of the bigger deer being killed in that early season. I think they're a little more vulnerable there. The numbers being taken with shotgun, I believe there, um, did, did drop. Um, but I don't know as that would really necessarily say, you know, oh, shortening a rifle season is going to reduce harvest. I think it just... It just shows that those bigger deer, you know, 
at certain times you're more 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 vulnerable and the weapon that's used to take them is, is just whatever's going to be when when they're that way i mean you've got missouri that has a tremendous rifle season for for dates for the rut for you know for whitetail you know you do see some good missouri deer with the bow but not as many as you do with the gun so i think a lot of it has more to do with dates really than necessarily weapon right now with and and I don't do you know Cheater, uh, Peter Churchborn at all, Justin? Well, NRA. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Have you had a chance to read his his How to Talk About Hunting book? No, I, I we met with him. I, I've discussed it a little bit. Um, I'm aware of it, but I have not read it. You know, or studied it by any means. It's a it's a it's a really good book um, for people in the industry. I'll say. Uh, I'm not going to tell people to go out and buy it and read it because it's just a whole lot of statistics and a whole lot of study and research. And, you know, it's not it's not a sit down and enjoy book. However, um, and Peter's been on the show before to discuss this. And he said amongst non hunters, the most accepted form of hunting is bow hunting. So given the fact that. Side by side, I mean, if we if we take a deer at, at 40 yards and we say, all right, this guy's got, you know, a 6.5 Creedmoor or 7-millimeter mag, whatever you want to give him, and this guy's got a, a compound. The 7 mag is probably more ethic, more ethical to take that shot. I mean, you're, it's got more knockdown power. It's got a heavier punch. It's going to just destroy the deer. So given that, that why do you think that bow hunting is more socially acceptable to the non-hunting public? Because – because they're all about, you know, not wanting the animal to suffer. Um, well, if a deer drops based off a seven millimeter shot and a deer running a hundred yards and bedding down before it dies for two hours, you would think they would go shoot them with a rifle. But yet, bow hunting is the most accepted form of hunting amongst non hunters. So I think anytime you look at any of this um analysis of what the 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 non-hunting public yet accepting of it thinks you've got to realize that they don't have all the details you and i do um yeah in in their mind a bow hunter is a quiet hunter they're they're not being they're not being intrusive they're 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 putting more you know back than what they took in many cases that's true but i think a lot of those statistics can be misleading um the example that I would use is like, oh, well, why don't you take on the bear with your bare hands? Well, we saw what happened when a guy speared a bear. They don't really necessarily think, <laughs> maybe understand all the way through what they're really saying. And so I 100%, I mean, bow hunting is a very acceptable pastime because it's not intrusive. It's respectful of the wildlife. You know, you you could make the argument that ethically, perhaps if a rifle is legal and you're trying to get the most clean kill the rifle might be the more ethical decision i just don't necessarily think that the non-hunting public that's not immersed in it like the three of us maybe would understand that actual you know moral debate that, that you'd have to have there so that goes back to the impact of rifle hunting versus bow hunting does rifle hunting actually truly have more of an impact on the herds on the ground, on the land, on the, you know, you mentioned it being more intrusive, at least in their minds, it being more intrusive. Um, mm-hmm. Does it actually play a bigger impact on the, on the animals? You know, I think, I mean, I think it definitely can. And I, I, 
you know, look at a Wisconsin rifle season. I mean, it's it's a set number of days. The, the woods turns orange. Yes, that's a huge impact. There's no doubt on that. Um, I would say that some of the Western seasons, the longer, you know, Montana's main big game rifle season runs for, you know, end of October through the end of November. I mean, you, you're spread out a little more, so it's not quite as invasive. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good question on whether, for, for from the outside perspective, I, I think I think both bow hunters and rifle hunters have shot themselves in the foot. Um, nothing worse than a picture of an arrow, a misplaced arrow or in a deer's neck or something that blows up on social media. Um, that being said, there's been rifle hunters that are slob hunters that cover their, the hood of their vehicles and, and the dead carcasses and drive from, you know, the North part of one state to the South of another and do just as much damage. Um, I think, you know, both of them have certain things about them that the hunter needs to be very cognizant of, you know, respecting maybe those that don't understand the whole process as ideals and then explaining how, you know, yes, mistakes happen and none of us encourage them. We do everything we possibly can to prevent that behavior amongst our ranks. Yeah. Um, I personally think, and, and maybe, maybe because I've got to have the conversation with Peter, I personally think a lot of it comes down to the non-hunting public views it as we're limiting our, we're limiting ourselves as much as possible and, and, equal making it more equal while remaining more ethical uh or why remaining ethical enough for them if if you will and that's why i think you jump to the spear and you're like well i i leveled the playing field more but you you fall off that that bit of okay you were still ethical in doing that um and so i think for me bow hunting is 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 that middle line of, okay, you leveled the playing field enough, but you're still going to be ethical in harvesting them. Throughout hunting, everybody limits themselves. And one way to do it for sure is say, okay, I'm going to limit my, my method of take. And that's, that's a great way. You're showing restraint. That's awesome. Um, Other people, they limit themselves by limiting what they're willing to shoot. They may see 200 deer that they could kill with their rifle, but not find the one they want. And so I think anytime you're limiting yourself and ethically thinking about what you're taking, be it, you know, limiting your, 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 your effective range, limiting what you're willing to shoot, as long as you stick to that and, and you're passionate about it, I think it's a very good thing in all aspects, you know? Yeah. Caleb. Yeah. I would be curious how, if any, or how much exposure some of the people that were, you know, questioned had, to, you know, you know, publish TV shows, if they had ever seen a hunting show on TV, um, you know, if they had family members that hunt XYZ, um, you know, just consuming or, you know, seeing different TV shows, hunting shows growing up, it, there's a distinct difference in a bow hunting TV show versus a rifle hunting show, you know, at the end of the day, they're both harvesting a deer, but I mean, it is a very, in the lack of better terms, violent action when somebody shoots a deer with a rifle or a shotgun on TV. Yeah. There's an explosion, the deer kicks, you know, they're still running off or they're, you know, dying on screen. You know, there, there's a lot there that if somebody has seen that, 
I could see where they could say bow hunting is a little bit more ethical because it's not as a, it's not a violent act or as violent of an act right at the time, you know, where they're harvesting that animal. So it, it's, Which, it's tough saying that it, that's one example that I could think of. Kind of takes me back to my question on impact. Does a deer and or a deer herd that has been shot at with rifles now become more skittish than those have been shot at with bows? I think it's a tough thing to kind of address as a blanket idea because, you know, if it's an isolated instance that only happens once, I mean, there's trees that snap and windstorms all the time. Right. So I think it depends on how much exposure, how often they're being shot at, you know, the pressure around on different properties, how much interaction they have with hunters on a you know yearly and or a daily basis during season. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But, you know, if it's an isolated one-time scenario and that particular deer is, you know, harvested, I would argue that it's low impact, but yeah. if it's an area where there's a lot of pressure on surrounding properties, it's like the Wisconsin and the Orange Army that's going on on the day. It's, it's tough. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much... The- I wonder how much of it's the actual rifle sound versus just the complete inundation. I mean, if if opening day of archery had the same numbers as it does of rifle hunters, I'd argue those deer would still be spooked. Now, I mean, common sense would tell us that a bow being a lot quieter would be less invasive. But at the same time, those deer running into three or four archery hunters, I think they might be just as spooky. It'd be It'd be an interesting study to try to do. Um, you know, like, like you said, Dylan, I mean, on, on the surface, it seems like clearly a big rifle shot's more invasive, but maybe, maybe there's additional factors there that we don't necessarily, you know, completely comprehend the full effect of just the number of people in the woods and getting to their stand house on them. Yeah. Well, and that's why I, I had an interesting conversation with, uh, with Stephen Ward, um, who's a mutual friend of ours. Um, and, and he was saying, what's so funny is like the big noises don't scare deer. Like it, you know, if I bang something on the side of a tree, like the, normally deer just like look around and keep going back. But if I like brush my, my shirt, like they hear something and they bolt <laughs> and you know, he, he's like, I equate that to predators aren't loud. Like mountain lions aren't stalking. And he was talking coos deer. Um, and he's like, you know, mountain lions aren't loud. They don't. They're just going to faintly hear a mountain lion take a step and they're going to know something's out of place. But yet a tree branch like Caleb alluded to, a tree branch snaps all the time and falls or, or you know, in Kansas, it's hedge apples. And I've, I've always been like, OK, how did a hedge apple just fall and sound like a gun going off? But that deer didn't even move. Well, because they're used to coyotes sneaking up and trying to get them as quiet as they can. Um, and so maybe there's something to be said about that. Like maybe there's something to be said about they hear a rifle going off and it's just, you know, it's another sound of a of an oil of an oil drum, you know, banging over there or whatever, and it doesn't spook them as much. Maybe I, I don't know. Yeah, as, as much as as much as we've spent and time we spent trying to figure these critters out, at the end of the day, there's still a lot we don't know. <laughs> yeah, there, there certainly is. Um, <laughs> So I did want to ask you too, and this kind of gets off topic, but, but 
it's a it's a rabbit hole I'm willing to go down. What do you gentlemen think? You absolutely burn a deer. Like maybe you do shoot at him and he looks right at you and knows where you're sitting and bolts. Or maybe uh, you bust him coming into your stand. And we're talking like that one, that one booner you've been chasing for four years. You blow him. How long does it take to get him back into normal routine? How long until? How long should you pull out and let him rest? Yo, Caleb, I'll let you go first, man. I'm a I'm a, a West Coast original hunting blacktails with a home range of one mile. It's yeah. a way different game than a whitetail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I've heard stories and I've talked to guys that will tell you that that deer never forgets. I've heard stories where a guy was in a particular tree. He got winded by a mature buck one day, switched his stand, moved to a different tree. And every time that deer would walk by, he would look in that old tree because he knew that something at some point had been there. So I don't know if it's necessarily, you know, when that deer will go back to his routine. I think his routine has changed forever after that. So it's a matter of how do you adjust and do something different to, you know, capitalize and down the road harvest that. But So... so I've seen it both ways. I've heard about it both ways. Um, do you think, do you think there's anything to do? Like, is there anything that we can do to ease that deer's mind at all? Um, as far as, you know, maybe it's in that moment. Maybe it's the weeks leading up to it. Maybe it's after it happens. Is there anything we can do to ease that deer's mind as to, hey, it's okay. Everything's back to normal. I think it's very dependent upon the situation. Yeah. And talking to big buck hunters, I think the worst thing, I think we get too set in our ways too. I've done it with elk. I know Um, you've got this plan that you've decided this is how you're going to kill this big buck. I think that's pretty detrimental just as much as bumping them. I think, I think your smart play is always switching it up. You know, you don't always sit in the same spot. Sometimes you're in the tree. Sometimes you're on the ground, you know, don't hunt the perfect wind, hunt the wind that might work. I mean, that that was the, the craziest thing that a person I know that's killed some absolute monster whitetails on, on a fairly regular basis, you know, he's like, yeah, they'll never come in when the wind's exactly what you want it to be doing. You kill your biggest box when the wind is just good enough that it might work sitting in that stand. And that makes sense. I mean, that's how those big smart deer are going to travel, you know, and then, you know, you, you bump it out, it sees you. Yeah, I think there probably is something to that they never forget. You as a hunter just have to adapt from that and maybe use that to your advantage. If they're always going to look to the right in that tree, wait for that okay wind and maybe hunt the left side of the trail from the ground. They're not looking there. You know, I think those big buck hunters, and I'm not one of them. I am not a big whitetail slayer by any means. That's the type of thing that those guys figure out and find great success, you know, using. So my only argument to that the deer never forget is what's different in me sitting in a tree, they smell me, they see me, and the farmer coming through to to work on the field and they smell that farmer and they see that farmer and they – and or coyotes. I mean, to think that, well, a deer never forgets when a coyote came after them or snapped at them. Well, they wouldn't be able to live anywhere. Um, you know, every time – I can't tell you how many times I've seen deer out in the field and here comes a coyote and the deer run off. And if you give them an hour, they come back in. 
Um, so while I'm while I said I was with Caleb because I've the majority of the time I've blown a deer up, usually he's blown up. Um, but then I start thinking, I'm like, well, what about all the times I've been burned by a coyote? It's not like they say, okay, I'm never going back there because I one time saw one time saw a coyote. Um, or I'm never going back there because one time, you know, a farmer's tractor backfired and it scared the daylights out of me. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a hard question. <laughs> you ready yeah, to go I mean, down this rabbit hole? To the farmer's <laughs> point, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Let's think, do it. <laughs> I think it's it's very situational. I mean, with the farmer, for example, you're talking about the the small noises versus the large noises going back to a point that you made. Yeah. I mean, if he's making a, an obvious impact, that deer knows where it came from. He knows what it was. But if you're in a tree stand where he's, you know, catches your wind, he can't see you because you're wearing camo for the most part, or, you know, he might outline you. He can't control that situation where you're in a tree stand. But if, you know, a, a farmer's walking through, he knows that that's not a standard thing. So, yeah. Bill Winky one time said, if I could take an RV to my tree stand every time I would, because I spook more deer walking as quietly as I can than if I was to drive a stinking RV to my tree stand. So I, I think my, my take on this, cause I, I'd see the same thing, you know, worked in the woods, running chainsaws, a herd elk would walk up to you. They don't do that when you're out there with your bow. And so I, I really think that, you know, we talk, you hear people talk about the animal have a sixth sense. They know when something's not right. The best scientific explanation that I can put to this is that there is some pheromone that, that a predator or a hunter puts out when they've got a kill mentality that the animal can pick up on. Um, I don't think we can detect it, but, you know, how many stories have you heard of giant bucks getting killed? And, and again, I'm going to use Wisconsin as an example. Farmer sitting in a tree listening to the Packers game, smoking a cigarette, and really could care less about the fact that it was deer season. He was just out there, and a giant buck wanders up to him. You know, you've been sitting up there like any deer that comes through. I, I'll shoot a doe. I'll shoot a spike. I don't care. Those are the days you see nothing. I mean, how many times is it like, oh, I only have a doe tag, and the bucks walk right up to you? There's something that we – I don't know if it's mannerisms. I don't know if it's a chemical reaction – but as a predator, you put off something when your mind switches into kill mode. And I think the animals can pick up on that. And that's why you can slam a truck door, bump a deer if you're just out walking and it's no big deal. But as soon as you're there trying to kill it, that's a different reaction that that deer has or whatever it may be. So do you think that plays into the whole they never forget? Because when we're sitting in a tree stand nice and quiet, they associate the danger with that same, you know, pheromone or whatever we want to call it yeah. um whereas farmer walking through they still get bumped and spooked but there wasn't that predator mentality there i think a deer has adapted for millions of years to survive predation humans included i think that for survival using those experiences where you had a run-in with a predator and and modifying your behavior going forward is advantageous and to your bloodline survival. So I, I do think that a interaction with a predator is a deer never forgets situation or is an inconsequential like, Ooh, that truck door slamming scared me, but it's not season. There, there's really no reason for them to retain that. That's, that's not, that's not going to make them better at being a deer. Whereas avoiding predators make them better at being a deer. 
so that also answers my coyote question too, because I mean, there's been times where you're sitting there and you're watching the deer and they're right out in front of you and you see a coyote and you're like, crap, he's about to blow this whole thing up. And the coyote just jogs by and the deer don't even look at him. But yet when he's creeping through the woods, the deer bolt because he's in that different mode too. Like he's in, Mm -hmm. I just want to get from point A to point B. I don't care about the deer right now. I'm just jogging through here. But yet when he's creeping through the woods, the deer just bolt as soon as they get a a glimpse of him or hear him, smell him, anything. So maybe that answers the whole question about the coyotes too. Yeah. I've spent many hours sitting, waiting for a critter to show up, contemplating this stuff. And that's the closest I can get to an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, so being in the industry, I think both of you can give a good answer to this. Bow hunting is, again, the most socially accepted form of hunting outside of, of hunters. So for a non-hunter, bow hunting is the most socially accepted form of hunting. Um, how has the social acceptance of hunting as a whole changed over the past generations you know i i think that it really depends on when you look at i mean you could take any any period of time since maybe the late 80s when it kind of got commercialized and really kind of thrown into the public view um there's there's been a lot of variations you know we at one point, we were doing horrible things on TV, showing impact shots, like the stuff that was completely inappropriate to the non-hunter. We went away from that. Now we're coming back to it. I think there's been a lot of rises and falls in how it's viewed and how it's portrayed. Um, you know, right now, the 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 trend that I would see is that um, a lot of folks that maybe want to be a little more cognizant of their, their footprint on the earth or taking this idea of hunting and saying like, Hey, this could be a good opportunity to gather food, um, to experience nature. I think that's a, that's a movement right now. They don't have the same motivations. I think that, that maybe we did growing up reading these outdoor life articles and dreaming of these, you know, giant far off exotic locations, you know, that I think a lot of the newer hunters are just really intrigued and like taking that fork and horn close to the house and, you know, appear dollars and cents. Like I've got this organic natural food I can feed to my family. You know, I'm not, I'm not supporting this, this idea of, of farming or so whatever they don't like, you know, I think that's a, that's a current switch too, that, you know, we as an industry need to figure out how to welcome them and not necessarily tell them they're wrong on everything. Maybe learn a little bit from them and teach them a little bit about the history and how we got here. Yeah. Well, I just think, so if you take 100 years ago, you go back 100 years ago and you say, I'm not going to hunt. That's sick and disgusting. You sick individuals, how could you do that? 100 years ago, if you didn't hunt, you didn't have meat to eat. So people didn't sit around saying that. Um, and I think just over the years how easily we've, we've – and guys, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not as cool as Justin. I don't hunt as much. I don't kill as much stuff. So I still go to the store and buy meat. Um, I go to the store and buy meat because homeboy likes beef. Um, I I like pork chops. I like shrimp. So I still go to the store and buy meat. But we've made it so easy 
to not have to do anything and, and still provide for your family. Um, whereas like, dude, even in our grandfather's time, like if you didn't kill your food, you didn't get to eat food. You didn't have food. And so I think by making it so easy to just drive to the store and pick up beef and we've commercialized that the meat market so much that it's even really cheap. Now um, we look at the price of the, the, the rising prices of meat. That's still really cheap um, comparatively to go out and, and do it yourself to buy weapons and camo and tags and fuel. And I mean, all that stuff, it's still really cheap to have a taco dinner at home. Um, so we've made it super easy and super cheap to accomplish and so people have just closed the doors as to how it's always been done. They've just all they've just become so closed minded as to I don't have to go murder something to have food. And it's just lost upon them that somebody's killing it. I mean, somebody is doing that for you. And by doing it at the grocery store, it's in a sick, inhumane way. So yeah, I, I think that's just completely rewritten the narrative on on how people view hunting and how it's accepted. Well, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think it's an overall removal of, from nature. Um, people don't don't understand necessarily like, okay, you're going to eat a um, vegan diet, soy-based. Yeah, how many deer were displaced to grow those soybeans? I worked for soybean farmers and they wanted those deer shot because they were eating their crops. You know, the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, is for, you know, for an organism to survive, there has to be death. And if you own that from start to finish, I think it, it makes you more cognizant of, of everything you're doing, you know, and, and not just the meat, the meat side of it. I mean, there's there's ramifications of anything you choose to eat. Something's losing. It's the same with, you know, you know, you could say dams for electricity are horrible or, you know, maybe wind turbines are horrible. There's always a winner and a loser, you know, and, and you know, my my take on it is. You know, you alluded to, I, I do eat mostly wild game and we don't want to figure out what I pay for it. I, I pretty much could eat Wagyu and probably come out ahead, um, you know, <laughs> but but that's my kind of take on why I am as adamant about hunting and doing all the different ducks and whatever it may be. Just just, you know, I I know what went into that. And to me, I take a lot of pride in that. And I think it, it behooved the whole human civilization to kind of take a look at, you know, where we really fit into nature and maybe we wouldn't be quite as brutal on everything as we have been in the past couple hundred years. Yeah. So Caleb, what do you think needs to happen in order to gain back some of the narrative and, and make a difference in the social acceptance of hunting? I, you know, to your point, I think there's a cause and effect. And if the, the end goal, you know, it, it depends on how it's being portrayed. You know, there's there's a lot that goes into it. And I think we've come full circle where we're starting to get back into um, there's a lot of people involved. So now it's becoming trending again to hunt. And, you know, you're going to start seeing some, you know, questionable ways where it's represented out there. But, you know, as a whole, if the idea and the reason why behind each person and why they're hunting you know, is out there, then everybody's going to have their own following or their own person that they follow and their own niche inside the market they follow. But in general, you know, for the non-hunters, if you're trying to reach non-hunters or we're trying to, as a collective, reach non-hunters and portray a good, you know, wholesome message behind hunting, you know, you know, the reason why 
and kind of figure out how to unify that reason why it would be ideal. You know, for me, you know, it, it is a challenge. And then there is the added benefit of, you know, game me. And I, I would say that that's the big added benefit or the main reason for a lot of people, you know, um, to your point, not everybody has to go hunting. It's not a necessity. There is meat that's easily available. You know, there are people you know, out there that don't have the fun but, being maybe. But, but not three years ago, meat wasn't easily accessible. Right. And it so. was very comical as to how many people knocked on my door saying, hey, do you have any deer meat? Um, hey, do you have any more of those elk steaks left over? And I'm like, hey, I thought you didn't like wild game. Yeah, but there's really no meat at the grocery store. And I'm like, so maybe now you see why I do what I do. Like, maybe now it's not lost upon you. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I think – that- Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I think, you know, the reason why and showing the whole process, that's how you reach that demographic and bring a better light on hunting. The whole process, you know, from the the preparation, the the hunt itself, which, you know, is exciting. But then when it comes down to the nitty gritty, this is where the work begins. This is why we hunt is at the end of the day, it's a challenge it's exciting. It is a good time. It's, it's a heritage. A lot of people, you know, were brought up in it that do it currently, but it's yeah. the, the post hunt, the processing, the utilizing what they've harvested. I think that full process is something that, you know, a lot of people could focus on and it would bring a better light in general. So. Which brings me into my next, um, kind of what I'm excited for. Uh, me and Caleb had been talking and, and this Friday, actually, um, we launch a new special, a new monthly special. So on the last Friday of every month, I have partnered up with camp chef and chef Mike Casanetta, who was on the food network and named one of America's top 10 chefs. And we're going to sit down me and Mike on the last Friday of each month and walk you through some sort of fun way to use your wild game. Um, you know, not, not your, Hey, this is how we're going to make deer chili, but teach you different new and exciting ways to use wild game. Um, And that one of the largest reasons we're doing that is because again, in Peter's book, he talked about how when given the full spectrum, when shown the full process, not just the harvesting, not just the bloody gripping grins and not just the eating, because that really doesn't help either. But when shown the full process from start to finish of why a hunter hunts, it can rewrite the narrative in that person's mind tenfold. But I mean, just crazy amount of turnaround in that person's head about how they view hunters. And so look forward to that. Starts this Friday and then every Friday at the end of the month, uh, we are doing that special called Cook Wild. And we're going to take you through a full process on how to make a fun recipe. Um so, Justin, how do how should we as hunters, if you were to say, all right, hunters, let's focus on this one thing. Let's do this one thing better, and it will help us as a community more than anything. What would you say that one thing would be? No matter who you're talking to, realize at the end of the day where they want to go probably doesn't differ that much from where you want to go. We just disagree on the paths to get there, and it would greatly behoove us as an industry to not get defensive 
or always being trying to defend ourselves and instead try to come to the middle and understand like, hey, just like you, I want more bears. I want more wolves. I want more whatever it may be. We just think the way to get there is a little different than you. I mean, this fighting, I mean, it's the whole country. But as an industry, if we could be more accommodating and accepting of these other ideas, I think they'd be more willing to listen to the fact that maybe we've got a few hundred years in science behind our approach and we're not just shooting from the hip. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that hunters I think that hunters just need to be more educated. And not and I'm not talking about gear and I'm not talking about um tactics. I'm talking about being educated on conservation efforts, being educated on on why we as hunters play a massive role in conservation efforts. Um because the non-hunting community they don't know they don't know the role that we as hunters play on conservation efforts. They don't know that, that we literally tax ourselves in order to be able to do what we want to do. No other sport has ever said, all right, we're going to put a tax on everything that we buy to continue furthering the sport that we want to do. Um, and so I think just being able to speak in an educated way about conservation efforts of Boone and Crockett and Wild Sheep Foundation and Pope and Young and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and being able to speak to what are we as hunters doing for the animals and the herds and the species and the longevity of those herds, being able to speak to non-hunters about those things, I think would make the biggest difference because we're like, it's my God given right. I'm going to keep shooting. That doesn't help them at all. It doesn't help them at all to say that, Uh, but to give them facts and say, did you know that, Deer herds in Kansas have grown 48% since they've introduced hunting seasons. Did you know that, and and that's not a, a stat, I don't know that stat, but to learn some of those stats and to be able to say hunters have invested X amount of billions of dollars into animals, you know, since whatever year you want to choose. I mean, to be able to give them those types of stats is really going to make them go, huh, maybe you do care about the animals. Just a thought, but I think that, we as hunters becoming more educated about why we do what we do would play a massive role. Guys, there's not many things that I'm going to tell you to stop and do right now. One of those things is to stop and go join Pope and Young right now. It's 45 bucks for the entire year to be a member of Pope and Young. And what that does for you is that helps to ensure your rights as a bow hunter. Pope and Young is constantly fighting for your rights as a bow hunter. They are the national bow hunting organization in North America. They exist to protect your rights as a bow hunter. They are all the time going before state legislators uh, to fight for your rights and to continue protecting your rights as a bow hunter. The record book exists in the first place because somewhere between us and the Indians, people had lost sight that bow hunting was a lethal way of harvesting big game. And so Glenn St. Charles and his group of cohorts, they started the record book so they could take it to different states and show that bow hunting is, in fact, a a ethical way of harvesting big game. So guys don't get caught in, in, in Pope and young only being a record book. They are your voice for bow hunters and there's power in numbers. So I would highly encourage you to join today because we need to stand together to protect our rights. Also, what you might not know is if you've bought a bear bow, you can go 
and register that bow, and you're actually going to get a free Pope and Young membership. Bear Archery is such a believer in the mission of Pope and Young and what they stand for and what they do to protect our rights that they are going to buy your first year's membership. So if you've bought a bow, go online and register that bow, and you're going to get a free year's membership to Pope and Young. But guys, I would encourage you, stop right here right now and go join Pope and Young because we have to protect our rights as bow hunters. Caleb, what do you think that one thing is? That one, if we as hunters could get better at this, it would change the narrative. I mean, I really back to that story is how we tell the story, you know, how we portray ourselves, but, you know, how we tell our story and how we present ourselves to the, the public. I think that's, that's the one thing is how we keep that in check. Yeah. Um, Justin, what have you found? And, and I know we got into this conversation a little bit there at the convention. Um, what do you think the biggest thing that we as hunters do wrong on social media? <laughs> so obviously minimizing the entire experience to a single grip and grin where you're looking like an idiot and nobody understands, you know, everything that went into that with a single post. I think that is, that is the, the single worst thing you can do. Um, yeah. On the other hand though, I am not wow. a, I am not a believer that we should not be engaged on social media because we all kind of agree that we need to tell the full story. Well, to tell that full story, you have to be engaging those people that are following you from, you know, now when I'm out shooting my bow and trying to get into shape to the, you know, sitting in the ground blind for the antelope, to the kill, to the, you know, hanging it and processing it. I mean, I think, I think you just need to be very mindful of don't just show the highlights, show the whole process. And I, I think that'd probably help a lot. I mean, how many people are depressed because they look at Facebook and like all they see is positives, man, tell the whole story. I think it'd be better for everybody. So, and we talked about this, how to, how in the, how in the heck, when you've only got people's attention for 4.6 seconds on social media these days, how in the heck can you even begin to show the whole process in, in one photo, two photos? I mean, how does that even happen? What, what steps can we take to make that happen? I, I think it's an emerging field. I mean, I try to do it and I have zero followers. I'm, I'm not a cool person by any means. I'm not an influencer. But, you know, I try really hard to, to try to but you build kill a lot that of out stuff. throughout. So I, I do kill a lot of stuff, but there's also just as many, if not more, food posts on there. I mean, I can make four or five dishes out of one duck, so you're going to see all of them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I think it's all something we need go. to work on and just, you know, just highlight everything you're doing. The working out, the the glassing, the the, the, the July trip up in the mountains where you know, note something like, Hey, cool, man. These moose are hanging out at the top of this peak. Show them that you're always a student of the wildlife. You just don't show up for a week and shoot one and then go home. Yeah. No, I can. And, and I think Caleb, you're, you're a, a really good photographer. Um, and, and guys, I'm not saying like you have to be some crazy good photographer in order to do this. Um, but coming from a photographer standpoint, um, what do you strive to do? I mean, when when you kill a deer or when somebody calls you and says, hey, I just killed a deer. Can you come help me get photos? What What is it in your mind that you're trying to do to, to make sure that happens? 
to make sure that it's going to be represented well and and it's not going to get you know a bunch of hate mail what are the steps right. you try to take well i mean first and foremost you know i like to i like photography and i think you know when i take photography of gripping grins or for what have you you know when i use the best gear at my disposal i'm representing that to the best of my ability not everybody has a camera not everybody has a, you know all the tools that i have at their disposal so what I first and foremost do is I do my due diligence to give that situation, you know, the best representation that I possibly can. So that that's my goal is I try and represent what has transpired, the harvest, the process that's gone into that to the best of my ability. And that that's my goal every time. Right. Um, so Justin, what would you say the biggest tip that you could give somebody, um, you know, maybe it's, it's data driven. I, I've actually come to love data tips, but, um, the biggest tip that you could give somebody to say, to become a better bow hunter, this is what I would do. Um, and, and before you give yours, I do want to give one. Uh, I'm sure Boone and Crockett has something a lot like this and you can tell me yay or nay, but Pope and Young has what's called, um, the, the online record system and you can look, you can search by County. So if I'm planning to go on a hunt and I say, man, I really want to hunt in Oklahoma next year, I can search by County as to where the most Pope and young animals are taken. Um, and that's going to give me a good starting point. You know, if, especially if it's a new state that you've never hunted before and you're like, all right, well, I'm closest to Southern Oklahoma. Well, Southern Oklahoma isn't going to offer. I mean, you look at, you look at, Southeast Oklahoma compared to Northwest Oklahoma, it's going to offer you crazy differences in how big the animals are going to be. Um, so by looking at that, you can say, okay, well, I want to just skip over Southeast Oklahoma and go straight to Northwest, uh, or straight to the straight to the Northeast, wherever. Um, and so that's a tip I have to utilize those resources you have to see where the biggest animals are being taken at. Yeah, no, I mean, before I ever went to work for Boone and Crockett, I was a part of it. At the time, it was called Trophy Watch. It's now Big Game Records Live. Uh, I was I was analyzing trends and saying, okay, in the last 10 years, where's a good, chance, good place to go hunt a bear? Um, be careful just looking at total numbers. Um, you know, things change. Habitat cover changes. Land ownership changes. Um Basically, my tip for anybody wanting to become a better hunter at all is spend more time. I mean, whatever it may be, scouting, shooting, studying, like the success, the, the people that are constantly successful and those of them that are the very top of their game, they spend an absolute pile of time. And in, in some cases, is at the expense of your family. I mean, it, you, you've got to weigh that. Um, you need to have a balance the best of the best, a lot of them don't, and they can put 110% of their time to hunting and they're going to have the most success. So, you know, that that's my hint. And that doesn't necessarily mean go all out on it because you may end up, you know, ruining a, a relationship or something over it. But that's, that's the reoccurring theme is the amount of time you can put into it. Caleb, what do you got for us? Yeah, 
I'll tag right along with him. Uh, I think time, but you know, preparation is the big thing. Um, it comes time to execute and make it happen. Be ready. You know, that goes back into our ethics conversation earlier. You know, I think both of them are a very ethical means of harvest. You know, one takes a little bit less time than the other, bow hunting versus rifle hunting, but they both take preparation. You know, I really didn't touch on that as, you know, you can put just as much time into a rifle prepping and getting ready. I mean, it's not as easy as buying a rifle going out hunting. There's a lot of preparation, sighting in, load development if you get into reloading. And then if you don't get into reloading, you know, shooting multitude of different boxed in or off the shelf to make sure that your rifle is as consistent as possible. You know, you don't want to go out and hunt three, 400 yards with a gun that can't hold a minute of angle. So there's a lot of, a lot that goes into that. And I think preparation is probably the key thing that I would hammer on. If you want to be a better hunter, be prepared to, you know, whatever happens to be ready to execute when you need to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gentlemen, I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I know that a lot of this is just us talking about our ideas and our thoughts on the ethics and on the, on the impact that hunting has. Um, but I think that these are conversations that more hunters should have. I think that these are types of conversations. My hopes is that this conversation will spur you to have more of these types of conversations. Um, because this episode stemmed from us sitting around a hotel room and starting to talk about these things. And what happens is you hear other guys, you hear, you know, other guys would hear us talking and, and they would give their input. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're coming up with new ideas and we're coming up with, with, tips and tricks on how to on how to represent hunting better um and we're starting to consider things in our own mind you know we start thinking about well am i being the most ethical by doing these things am i making the best decisions by doing this should i be posting that on social media is the way that i'm doing things encouraging or hurting uh the, our hunting heritage and and you really start to consider those things so guys I just want to encourage you to start having these types of conversations more um, with other bow hunters and, and other hunters alike. And so, um, guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. You guys have a fantastic week.